0: In 58 AD, the Christian church in Rome found itself deeply divided between her Jewish and Gentile members. To help guide the church towards unity, St. Paul wrote the longest of his 13 letters to God's Beloved in Rome. You could argue that Paul's lengthiest letter was the most important letter ever written. Not just by Paul, by anyone, ever. The most prolific of New Testament authors, the second most influential character in the Christian tradition an anti-Jesus zealot and Pharisee who changed course on the road to Damascus to become a primary architect of the Christian faith. He wrote a letter to the fledgling church that would help define her beliefs early on and continues to help define who we are as Jesus' people today. It's a profoundly historical book written out of a deep personal understanding of and relationship with God. Romans, the most important letter ever written. Hey friends, open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter two. If you aren't in a place where you have access to a traditional Bible, you can take your digital device and you can open the U version, or it's also called the Bible app and all the notes and scriptures, those have already been uploaded. Wherever it is you're watching us from, I love you so much. Thank you for being a part of our family. The response we received from last week's message has been so encouraging. It's always interesting as a communicator when you try something new, something so different from what you normally do. But people's hunger to go deeper, their hunger to learn and grow has been evidenced by your involvement in our life groups and and in this week's edition of Ask Pastor Sean, this is a Zoom call that we did this past Tuesday night where people can get on a call and they can ask questions or they can hear more of the content I just didn't have the time to include in this week's past message. You know, summarizing the life of someone as monumental as the Apostle Paul in 20 minutes, that's not just an unreasonable or unrealistic thought. That's an impossible task. So we're going to do one of those calls again this week, same time, eight o'clock Tuesday night. And if you want to be a part of that, again, just RSVP On our website. I've also had a number of pastors from across the country who watched the message and they reached out to me. They thanked me for the content, so that was really encouraging. But what I really hope is that these messages and this series will challenge you and encourage you to dig, to examine, to read Romans with a bit of a new context. And I get it. Trust me, I get it. This isn't what you'd call a felt need series. This isn't one of those series where you get three quick tips on how to do something. Three ways to fix your marriage or three ways to repair your finances or three ways to have solace during the shelter in place. I get it. It's not a felt need series. It's more like a college course, which is why last week I said this isn't as much a preaching series as it is a teaching series. In fact, we had a call this week with some of the pastors and the leaders we have on our team here. And my brother-in-law, Brian Russo, said something that just really grabbed my attention. He he was talking about a world history class he took his sophomore year in high school and how that class was where we really learned how to learn. I just really liked how he said that. And it, it really summed up what our goal is here. We want you to learn how to learn. You know, anytime you write or speak, it's inevitable you source the minds and works of intellectuals who've come before you. That's what this series of teachings is. It's the result of 25 years of me mining the works of those giants who've come before me. Scholars I align with and agree with, and some who quite honestly I don't align with or agree with on every front, but authors nevertheless to whom I am indebted when it comes to Paul. Men like Swindoll and Missler, Pollock and Morton. So you become the beneficiary of my years of education and excavation because no matter how you slice it, the Bible is a book that requires you to dig. It's a study in juxtaposition. It's complex yet clear. To borrow the thoughts of Dickens, it speaks of the best of times and the worst of times. It's profoundly simple, yet simply profound. And it isn't just some ethereal, mystical, spiritual book. It's God's chosen delivery system to teach us how to live. And because it was written in such a different culture and climate to the one we live in, it can be difficult to understand and difficult to incorporate into our own lives. It was written in a place and time that was different to ours, but it wasn't written to people who are different than us. They had all the same struggles and concerns that we do. So it's imperative that we dig past the differences and search for the similarities. And the way we do that is through context. To understand the real message, we have to understand the background. So we learn about what motivated the people who wrote it and and what made the people they wrote it to tick which is why we started a series on the book of Romans by talking out of the book of Acts last week, because that's where we meet and begin to understand the person who wrote Romans. And fair warning, it's gonna be a few weeks before we actually even get into Romans chapter one. So we started last week by talking about the who, and we're gonna continue digging today by sharing a teaching we're just calling what? Let's pray. God, we love you we value you, we cherish you, we surrender to you. God, I pray today as we go through some of your word that your word will infiltrate us, that your word would infect us, that your word, quite honestly, would totally change us. That God, we wouldn't be the same person at the end of this message as we are now. That God, we would be less like us, and more like you, in Jesus' name. Amen. The Book of Romans, it's such a rich, robust document to read, filled with complex, complicated concepts. It's an epic piece of literature as influential as legendary works like The Republic by Plato or The Odyssey by Homer, Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe, or Walden by Thoreau, which incidentally is the reflections of Thoreau's social experiment of living in an isolated cabin next to Walden Lake in order to better understand society. Talk about relevant to our current context. Anyway... The significance of this document cannot be understated. If he had never written or spoken another word, Romans entitles Paul to rank with Epicurus, Hippocrates, or Aristotle among the greatest intellects of not just the ancient world, but of all time. And it's important we embrace the complexity and lean into its concepts, especially as Jesus followers in the face of a skeptical society that has attempted to paint us as naive sheep simply looking for spiritual solace or an ecumenical escape from the challenges and realities of this life. It's an opinion of us that was echoed a few years ago when media mogul Ted Turner famously said, Christianity is for losers. In contrast, though, prolific author Evelyn Underhill declared, a God small enough for our minds wouldn't be big enough for our needs. I think it's interesting how the intellectual community downplays Christianity because of its perceived sense of overwhelming simplicity, while a fair percentage of the Christian community avoids the Bible, particularly the book of Romans, because of its perceived sense of overwhelming difficulty. But the solution to both simplicity and difficulty is the same. Further study. I actually wonder what would happen if we approach scripture the way an attorney approaches a case. Knowledgeable and experienced, the district attorney makes his case. Calling key witnesses to the stand, he presents the evidence. After discrediting the testimonies of witnesses for the defense with skillful cross-examination, he concludes with an airtight summary and a stirring challenge for the jury. The announced verdict comes as no surprise. Guilty, states the foreman, and justice is served. The Apostle Paul was intelligent, articulate, and committed to his calling Like a skilled attorney, he presented the case for the gospel clearly and convincingly in this letter we call the book of Romans. It's no surprise then when we look back on what we learned last week about Paul's background where he aspired to be a member of the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, that God would call him to be the wellspring from which this defining, defending document would come. So we know the who behind Romans, Paul. But what about the what? What is the book of Romans? Well, before we can even dive into that, I think it's important to define some things that we'll talk about today as well as in the weeks going forward. Because in any document, it's not only important to understand the context, it's also necessary that we understand the language So what I want to do is I want to define some terms that you're going to hear in this series of teachings, but you're also going to come across throughout your further study throughout scripture. So we're going to call this a glossary of terms. and These terms are as simplified as we can get them. So for example, when you hear me say a word like theology, theology is the study of the nature of God's word. What is a Jew? That's a person of Jewish birth or descent. What's a Gentile? that's anyone who's not jewish what's it mean to be pious that means to be overly devoutly religious what's an apostle an apostle is a messenger or or it's someone who's sent And incidentally, the difference between a disciple and an apostle is that a disciple is a student or someone who learns from a teacher where an apostle is someone who who sent to deliver those teachings to other people. And just to avoid any confusion, the 12 who followed Jesus, they were both. Luke 6 says, Jesus went out to a mountain to pray and he spent the night praying to God. When morning came he called his disciples to him and and he chose 12 of them whom he also designated as apostles Simon Peter his brother Andrew James John Philip Bartholomew Matthew Thomas James Simon the Zealot Judas son of James and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor So disciple student apostle messenger what's an epistle that's a letter What's iniquity? That's gross injustice or wickedness. What's salvation? It's freedom from the power of sin. Sanctification is being set apart. Righteousness is being in right standing with God. What does it mean to be justified? That's to be found not guilty. Well, what's faith? Complete trust. And grace, this one's really important because we find it throughout the book of Romans. Grace is unearned, undeserved favor from God. So, Paul was this prolific author who wrote 14 books of the Bible. And the books he wrote are called epistles, so, they were letters. And they're all letters he wrote to churches he started except Romans, which is more like, a, like an elaborate theological essay than a letter. And it, and it wasn't written to the church in Rome, it was written to the believers in Rome. So we're going to talk about that more in the weeks to come. But every concept in the Bible is contained and condensed into Romans. So Romans was by far the longest of Paul's surviving writings, even though in the ancient world, communication was difficult and very costly. Writing materials were expensive, and and constructing and conveying the concepts in this letter called Romans took great time and incredible effort. Since there was no publicly or privately funded postal service, all letters needed to be hand-delivered. And as a result of that, a typical letter averaged just 87 words. For perspective, the letters of Cicero, who's regarded as the greatest Roman orator of all time, his letters averaged 300 words. Paul's epistle or letter to the Romans is more than 7,000 words. And the price of the scribe and the writing materials needed to complete it would have been about $2,000 in our current economy, very costly. And the primary purpose of this letter was to reveal and deal with the grace of God. And there was no one better qualified to write about this idea. This man who himself claimed to be the least of all saints and the chief of all sinners understood and explained grace better than any of his contemporaries. And looking at the darkness of his past helps us recognize his gratitude for God's grace, which isn't an easy concept to understand. In fact, in 500 BC, Socrates wrote a letter to his friend and student Plato declaring, it may be that deity can forgive sins, but I do not see how. So grace is a concept that has escaped the greatest minds the world has ever seen. So to simplify it, Christian author Hal Lindsey treats it as an acronym, and he says grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. The apostle Paul says it's what bridges the gap between God's righteousness and man's iniquity. And clearly to Paul, grace wasn't in opposition to works. So we should be cautious when we try to make grace the opposite of works. Of course, works can easily become legalistic, which can cause us to become pious. But that's not works fault, that's our fault. The same people who become pious because of their works can just as easily become careless because of God's grace. But grace is not anti-religion. Let's be clear on that. There's a trend in our Western church world, and I've been a victim of it myself, a trend in the Western church world to criticize religion by contrasting it to relationship. But religion is not in competition with relationship. Religion is not a bad thing. Paul was very religious. Even after he was a recipient of grace, he carried out the unending cycle of ritual cleanings, of platters and cups, as well as his own person. He kept the weekly fasts between sunrise and sunset. He said the daily prayers in exact progression and pattern and number. He was religious and he was devout. Religion only becomes dangerous when it becomes legalistic. Paul was showing that grace makes your works make sense. It's like Romans is teaching people to balance their head knowledge and their heart knowledge. So we see its primary purpose is to reveal and deal with the grace of God. And its primary emphasis is that both Jews and Gentiles are made right with God through God's grace because of Jesus. Neither are eliminated from the forgiveness of their sins and neither are excluded from the responsibility of their sins. The Gentiles weren't excused from responsibility due to ignorance because Paul showed that every man has an instinctive awareness of God but has willfully rejected and excluded him from their lives. The Jews weren't excluded either because with all the privileges awarded them thanks to God's revelation of himself and the pride and the destiny awarded them as his people, They had adopted a smug superiority towards others and a stubborn, rebellious heart toward God. And that also wouldn't go unpunished. But Paul was saying, the whole world is accountable to God, whether their consciences excuse them or accuse them. And that accountability, Scripture says, will take place when God judges people's secrets through Jesus. And Paul wasn't lecturing them. He was leading them. He makes it clear that this isn't theoretical for him. It's deeply personal, evidenced in the words that he would later write to his spiritual son, Timothy, when he said this. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, and he appointed me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. How's that for a two-sentence autobiography? He realized that he had imagined that he had served God. He, He pictured himself climbing into God's favor because of the flawlessness of his works. But now in contrast with Jesus' grace that had invaded him, he knew his purity had been counterfeit and his good deeds had been a parody. He'd actually been mentally and spiritually hostile toward God, though honoring him with his mouth and being meticulous with his religious rites and rituals, he had been completely separated and estranged, blinded from the very freedom he thought his works were earning him. But then Jesus caught him and Jesus confronted him, not to crush him or to destroy him, not to avenge the blood of the persecuted, but to rescue and overwhelm him with love and forgiveness. And that forgiveness was a gift, complete and whole and perfect because that forgiveness was Jesus himself. And it couldn't be earned. No human merit could outweigh human sin. But in receiving the grace of God through Jesus, he, along with any sinner, could have a future, and could have a hope, a thought that would prompt Paul to write these words. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live. By faith, So the whole of Romans tells us salvation is available to anyone regardless of their identity, their sin, or their heritage. It says we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. And, and through him we can stand before God justified with the freedom that comes from being saved from the power of sin. It's a concept that echoed the words of the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. Words that Paul would have read his entire life, but prior to Jesus, he would never understood this idea that the righteous shall live by faith. So what is Romans? Let me leave you with three things. First, it's your framework. It's the principles you surround your life with that'll help you keep your life centered. It echoes the words of Proverbs chapter three that says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. He'll keep them centered. Second, it's your filter. It's the purifier you siphon your life through that'll help you get your life clean. Paul tells us in Philippians to keep our minds on whatever is true, pure, right, holy, friendly, and proper. Don't ever stop thinking about what is truly worthwhile and worthy of praise. Third, It's your freedom. Scripture says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. It's the peace our Savior has promised and provided to anyone who's willing to submit themselves to him. I wonder, are you willing to do that? Are you willing to do it today? To let Jesus be the framework and the filter that gives you freedom, both now and forever. I hope so, it's what we live for, because the righteous, they shall live by faith. Will you close your eyes? Living by faith, it's what in the church world we've come to call salvation. Salvation means a rescuing. I don't know where you are, I don't know what you're dealing with, but I know that there is a great number of you who are dealing with the insecurity that only comes from a lack of salvation. The insecurity that only comes from not living our lives by faith, by not being righteous, by not being in right standing with God. I wonder if you're watching and you say, Sean, that's me. I'm not in right standing with God. I need to be rescued. I need to be delivered. I need to be set free. I need to be saved from my sin, my shame, myself. I'm gonna tell you the good news is that the delivery system of salvation is is so simple. Now that Jesus paid the price on the cross, scripture says, if you confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord, you are saved. And so this morning, I wanna give you the opportunity to do that, and here's how we will do this. This morning, I'm going to say a few lines of a prayer and then I'll pause. When I pause, if you want to give your life to Jesus, all you have to do is repeat the words that I just said. And if you mean those words, you will be saved. And so, if you want to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, will you just repeat these words after me? Say, Jesus, I'm a sinner, but I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Will you come into my heart? Will you change me? Will you make me new? Will you be my Lord? Will you be my savior? In Jesus' name, amen. Friend, if you just prayed that prayer, I'm so excited and I want the opportunity to connect with you. So if you'll click that link on our screen that says you're raising your hand to receive Jesus, that'll give me the opportunity to know who you are and it'll give me the opportunity to follow up with you. I'm so proud of you, so excited for you. Welcome to the family of God, but we're not done. I'm gonna ask you to close your eyes again. I wonder if you're watching this today and you're a Jesus guy or you're a Jesus girl, but you know, you know you're not all in. You know, people who overuse works or overuse grace aren't all in. People who, who think that the things that they do wrong can be covered up by making penance or the people who think that the things that they do wrong don't matter because they're covered by grace. We're, we're in the same camp. And so today, if you'd say, Sean, I'm not all in, and you would identify with the fact that perhaps you've been overusing works or you've been overusing grace. I want the opportunity to pray for you. And so Father, today for my friends who are on the other side of this screen, God, some of whom have been overusing the process of works and some of whom have been overusing the process of grace, I pray you'd unlock that in us. God, I pray that we would go all in. Surrender and submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name.